Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. Today, we are going to be speaking with Chris Dunn from Arizona Backcountry Llamas, uh, using llamas to get farther into the woods and using them to help pack out your game animals or to bring in gear has become more and more popular over the last several years. Um, several high-profile people, including Randy Newberg, has kind of put it on the map with utilizing Bo Beatty out of Idaho. And we have one of our very own here in Arizona that's been doing it just as long and uh, is really good friends with Bo Beatty. Chris Dunn and his wife are uh, lifelong adventurers, lifelong outdoorsmen and women, and they've uh, instilled those values into their children and had have been taking their uh, daughters out on adventures ever since they were uh, little bitty girls. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Chris is going to shed some light on what it takes to take care of those animals, um, how they adapt and overcome in the different temperature swings, whether you're using them in the summer times or if you're using them um, in higher elevation where it's colder and how they can be uh, the X factor in making the adventure go a little bit more easy and being able to bring in a little bit extra gear or helping you pack out that that uh, elk quarter and uh, all the advantages that it comes with. And Chris is going to show or share with us a lot of different uh, hunting stories. He's been in the game for a long time, has been a guide, and um, is a wealth of knowledge. We really hope you enjoy this episode. We have a very good episode today. It's very unique. Um, we have a very special guest. Chris Dunn is going to be on the phone with us. Chris Dunn and his wife are the owners of Arizona Backcountry Llamas. But Chris has um, quite a few stories to share, lots of insight in the hunting world, the perspective from being here for quite a long time and being in and out of the game over the several decades and Chris has uh, this business on taking people in the backcountry, utilizing llamas that has become very popular or um, more brought to the attention based on social media and other hunting shows or different organizations bringing it to light. But he is a local Arizona company that we love uh, shedding light on and giving some sponsor or giving some some kudos to and it's a subject that a lot of us have never experienced we've never used any type of pack animal i mean um other than some mules here and there uh, on horseback for for packing out but goats and llamas are kind of unique and becoming more popular but without further ado we won't steal his thunder chris dunn from arizona backcountry llamas how are you sir i'm doing great yeah it's a Great time to be in Arizona right now. I'm here in uh, Chino Valley, Prescott area. The wind's blowing at 75 degrees, and it's couldn't be better. 
the from May through September, I wish I could be a, a Coconino or Yavapai County resident, and then Maricopa or somewhere else on uh, on October through April because the summer up yeah. there is incredible. The winters up there are incredible too, but it's sure nice to get up there and uh, get outside when it's yeah. any time over have- hundred. I'm going to have to have you edit that out. We have enough people already coming together. <laughs> you <laughs> so, do. You do. Yeah, I mean, I live about a mile and a half down a dirt road, you know, from the nearest pavement. And it used to be we'd complain if we had one other person on that dirt road. He's like, oh, I'm going to have to eat somebody's dust. And in the last three years, there's no time I'm on that road when there's less than four or five vehicles. I mean, it's it's unbelievable how much this rural area where I live has has grown up in the last few years. So. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I remember in the early '90s, I was helping do. I was an electrician back then, and I was doing side jobs, building houses. And, and there was just you'd come into Prescott Valley, and there was just hardly any houses. And these were some of the first houses in the plains yeah. back to the north. And you know, yeah. and uh, we used to be able to take the dirt road all the way across. You know, the old Fain Road and everything else. And we had to cut through there and zigzag. And it's just it's mind boggling. You know, just to see that the transformation of Prescott, you know, Prescott Valley, Chino, all the way up. I mean, it's just, it's almost like a mini city. I mean, like, it's like Phoenix now. It's like Phoenix was in the 90s. It's crazy. Yep. So, people, if you're thinking about coming to Arizona, don't come here. Go to Phoenix. You don't want to. You know, know, remember that when Fain Road was dirt and there were hundreds of antelopes standing out there, too. Yep, it's true. I remember when I first applied my first tag, I didn't know how to hunt back then. I think there was 110 permits, two hunts back to back. I mean, just crazy. And now there's what one hunt, maybe 12 tags. It's just it's it's yeah. unbelievable how how it's different. Yeah, and not not near as much land to hunt, but but yeah, that's that's the good and bad. You know, I, I always say I was like living in a place where other people want to go on vacation. You know, that means you're that means you're living right. Exactly. <laughs> so. Jealous. Yep. Jealous. 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 Well, you want to do a quick introduction about you and your your company and um, what that's all about, and then kind of a little bit of your backstory on hunting that a lot of people may or may not know. Yeah. Um, well, first off, you know our our llama business is called Arizona Backcountry Llamas, and um, my wife and I, Janice, have been packing with llamas ourselves since the early '90s, which makes us kind of pioneers in the llama world. We had it figured out um early on what a game changer pack llamas are and um only in the last five years really did we get more serious about you know get more llamas we're breeding now selling llamas and taking people out and sharing llamas with people and and you know before we started recording i was telling you about how i kind of crawled out from under a rock after um just kind of doing my own thing for about 20 years um and one of the things I realized was like, whoa, llamas are popular now. What's the deal with that? You know, and really the only reason why I found out is we were in need of replacing a couple of our packers and you couldn't buy them. We used to always, you know, there were a few breeders that were breeding really good pack llamas and we used to always be able to get llamas if we wanted some. And the few breeders that were left were like, yeah, you know, we're, we're retiring, we're not selling, you know, and then there was other people that were just trying to build their herds because of the popularity. And so that's how we kind of got into the breeding thing was to just try to build up our own pack string and then we decided well we might as well start making these these llamas pay for themselves and so we started doing um it was funny during covid we were doing just day hikes like two hour and four hour hikes you know here in the prescott area and the phone was ringing off the hook because people just wanted to get out of the valley 
get out of the COVID lockdown and get outside and do some stuff. And it was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. We're providing, you know, a great time for people. And we found out that most of the people we were taking out were just people that just like llamas. There's, you know, if you have kids, you know, there's llama birthday hats and llama. we have a llama shower curtain in our house. You know what I mean? <laughs> Llamas are so popular and we just had no idea. Just like, you know, I was telling you earlier, I kind of did my own thing for hunting for about 20 years. And when uh, I finally kind of started paying attention again, I realized, well, all the things I was doing before, like, I mean, I've been a traditional bow hunter for over 30 years. I'm like, oh, traditional bow hunting's cool now. Huh. Llamas are cool now. So, and I, and I can uh, attribute the, really the popularity, the recent surge in popularity of pack llamas almost entirely to Bo Beatty, the Wilderness Ridge Trail Llamas up in Idaho. Yep. If you've ever seen, you know, Randy Newberg's TV show, those are Bo's llamas that are on Randy's, that Greeny's always taken out. Correct. And um, Bo is a younger guy. You know, I, I have teased him before that I started packing with llamas when he was like four years old. You know, but <laughs> yeah, Bo, he's probably Bo in his is, 30s, right? Early 30s. Yeah, he's like 35 now. Um, but he's like the 800 pound gorilla of pack llama breeders. I mean, I think he's probably the biggest pack llama breeder there's ever been in North America. Um, with I think he probably has over 500 llamas right now. And wow. but he took it upon himself to rescue the North American pack llama from extinction. And it's not like it's a species, so llamas are just llamas. There's not different species, but there's definitely different varieties, right? So, like, just like you have, you have Labrador retrievers and you have Chihuahuas, they're still the same species, but they're for different purposes, right? And so, so llamas come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, and they were very popular in the '80s with people that were speculating, trying to make, you know, lots of money. People that weren't into packing, they were they were just you know wealthy people that were trading trading furry cute things and they were breeding them to be furry and cute instead of being strong and, and uh packers and so the the pack llamas that were around were kind of dying out and if people had a llama that wasn't all woolly and furry they they'd sell it you know sell it off say oh it's a packer you know but it wasn't really a packer and so bo bo put a lot of effort into getting the best genetics and the most genetics he could from anywhere in the country and he was just a young guy he was in his early 20s when he started this and um, now he's built this empire and um, got the word out, and it's it's been it's been really great for the for the pack llama world. I mean, I'm breeding pack llamas now that you couldn't even find 30 years ago. Like I have I have, I have a bunch of females out here. Every one of them's over 400 pounds, and they're all like 48 inches at the shoulders, you know. And uh, like that was a giant llama. You might see one of those in a thousand back you know in, yeah. in the 1990s and so and that's that's really attributed to to both so i gotta gotta give him some love but the original pack llama king of pack llamas is stan ebel buckhorn llama company up in colorado stan's been doing it for 45 years and um he um he he had you know the sort of the the king of the llama world for a long time he's he's still breeding i just bought two llamas from him last summer and he breeds great pack llamas too. And those are those are the two guys that I admire the most and that I think are really responsible for keeping the pack llamas in North America alive. So so we have a pretty small operation here. You know, we we don't we only have seven and a half acres and you know, we're in Arizona where you don't have pasture and stuff. So it's a little bit more expensive to raise llamas here, but it's um it's great. You know, they're 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 game changers, you know, for in many ways. <laughs> so they're so unique and they have such different personalities than, than horses. And then, then mules, they have 
Um, I'm sure you're, you'll shed some light, different dietary requirements, somewhat yeah. easier to take care of when they're in the back country. Definitely yeah. don't require as much food and don't require as much water as, you know, some of the big, bigger mules and bigger horses require. Yeah. And yeah. very good watchdogs in the back country too for, for predators. As, yeah. as I've been told, their their different warning systems, their different vocalizations are are very unique, and um, they're just fun fun creatures to be around. Which is probably why they became popular, as you know the as you said the 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 fuzzy you know rich rich person's pet, but yeah. getting those bigger ones that are um, better built, better stocky, uh, probably stronger bone structure and stronger muscles in order to to carry the weight you know whether they're packing out an elk or packing out a uh, a tent or you know a wall tent or whatever gear it's just like you can't you know throw that on a big hunting pack on on someone that's never done that before conditioned right. or, or built up to that yeah i mean the the real deal i mean so kind of our story with pack was we were my wife and i We've been together for over 40 years. It's a good thing I married her when I was two. But, uh, <laughs> I always yeah. say she was a cougar because for, for a little while, she's two years older than me. Um, <laughs> but um, but we were backpacking in the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming in 1988. Um, and we saw some pack llamas there. And we're like, oh, that's the deal. Because she and I, not together, because we didn't know each other when we were really young. We met actually met in college. But we had both started backpacking. I did my first backpacking trip when I was nine years old and she did her first one. She was nine or 10 as well. We met in college and it was a match made in heaven. You know, I saw her, she was wearing a Yosemite t-shirt and her hiking boots. And I'm a rock climber going way, way back to, I've been rock climbing for almost 50 years. And, and I was like, Oh, I gotta go talk to that girl, you know, and that was you know, the rest is history. And so when we, um, when we saw those llamas, like we got to get some of those, you know, that's awesome. And, uh, and it just seemed like a no-brainer. You know, we we lived well at that time. We were actually homeless. It was we had, we were traveling around the country looking to see where we wanted to move to. We were actually living out of my Nissan pickup truck for a few months, and um, huh. we ended up moving back to Arizona to be close to the family. We're both Arizona natives, and um, eventually um, got a little house in Cottonwood, and I put a fence up in my backyard, and we got a couple llamas, and. Two weeks after I got those llamas, I took them on a pack trip. I, I had a, one of those late archery tags in Unit 23. Um, and I packed into the, the wilderness over there, the Hell's Gate Wilderness, Unit 23 with these llamas. I ended up not killing an elk, but it was like, oh, yeah, this is the way to travel. And there was no looking back after that. You know, we had we'd backpacked in the Grand Canyon and, you know, on the San Juans and the superstitions and all over the place. And, you know, by the time we were 30, our knees were already starting to get kind of worn out. And, and then it was like, nope, llamas are the way to go. And we just kept doing it. And um, when we had kids, man, it just made having kids in the backcountry so much easier. Um, I got to give a shout out to, to Janice because both of our daughters did their first overnight wilderness, like legit wilderness with a capital W llama pack trip when they were under three months old. Holy cow. And, um, you know, it's like, that's a, this is more about your wife than about the kid, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> a baby. But, um, yeah, we, we took, I remember our second daughter, we, one of her first trips was in the Gila wilderness. She was just a little baby. She was born in April and it was in June. I remember that. And, um, hmm. 
I'm, I'm calling bears and stuff, <laughs> but, but, uh, but anyhow, that it just, you know, you, you, you can bring diapers, you can bring extra stuff for the kids. It just was a major game changer. So, so I, I like to brag about my kids and, and my wife because, you know, so much stuff that we were able to do because of llamas, you know? And so when I say they're a game changer, you know, if you're a family person and we were a little bit older when we had kids and our, my, our friends were like, Oh yeah, wait till you have kids. You won't be doing all that backcountry stuff anymore. And it's like, it didn't slow us down at all. That's great. When, when my daughter, my oldest daughter was 10 years old, we counted up how many llama pack trips or at least overnighters that she had been on. We could remember 50 of them by the time she was 10 years old. Incredible. So, so you know, those so, are memories that they will cherish forever that they will <laughs> never, ever forget. You know, the funny thing is, of course, you know, when your kids grow up, we had llamas before we had kids. And so they, they were like, horses are really cool. It's like, no, we have llamas. <laughs> you know, whatever your kids have, they think that's, everybody has that, you know. Right, yeah, but, exactly. That's but true. yeah, they were, they actually could ride on the llamas when they're, you know, a little too big to carry them around in a backpack and too small to keep up all day. They would, they would ride on the, on the llama too. So it was, it was really good. So I, I think there's a lot of people that should have pack llamas and it's hunters. Number one, if you're a backcountry hunter, yep. pack llamas, you can't, can't be beat. And then the second is families that want to get out into the backcountry. You know, they're, they're just, they're, they're, you know, you can, you can go backpack and suffer yourself. But if you want to take your kids out there too, well, you got to carry their stuff. You know? yeah. <laughs> so the llamas change all that. So it's, it's definitely a game changer. So let's break that down. So you so you have like a horse trailer and you bring, let's say, four llamas to like a trailhead or let's say you're going to do backcountry or whatever it is. You basically have like uh, packs that basically are wrapped around each of the llamas and you basically fill those full of all your goods. Then they're just following you or how? kind of break it down to what somebody would understand of what it would from the start to finish. Yeah, so... Um, Basically, you know, the, the llamas that we use are pretty good size. They're not, you know, you can have pack llamas that are great packers that are 280 pounds. And you have pack llamas that are great packers at 450 pounds. It's not the size so much as the heart and the confirmation, right? They have to have, they have, to have the, the desire to go and carry stuff around. And so that's the first thing, you know, that people, you know, might misunderstand. It's like, oh, I only want a registered pack llama that's 400 pounds and stuff. It's like, I one of our best packers, we actually just sold him recently to some guys in Wyoming that are starting a pack business up there. He was just a little guy. He was barely 300 pounds and he was a rescue llama, you know, but he would carry 70 pounds all day long every day, you know? And so most people backpacking aren't going to carry 70 pounds. They might think they are, but they're probably not, you know? Not and for so, very long. Right. So, you know, we roll up a, to a trailhead. If we had just had two llamas, that's 140 pounds of carrying capacity on two llamas, right? Yeah. So think of how much luxury you have there. And so we often would just bring two llamas, and we had a little 5 by 10 enclosed trailer. We called it the llama box, just a little single-axle trailer, didn't even have a horse trailer. We dragged them to some of the most rugged places in Arizona. Or you can put them in the back of a pickup truck with a stock rack in the back. You know, you have to do a little training to get them to, to get in the truck, but we've done that too. And so, so getting llamas to the trailhead, even on a rough road is easier than it is with horses. 
And you don't have to have a big string of llamas. Two llamas can make your life so much better. The problem is you just start bringing lots of extra stuff, you know, because <laughs> you want to go in comfort. But, you know, you roll up to Trailhead, and we, we use their kind of um, more like sawbuck-style saddles on them, you know, with the little X on the top. Correct. Um, there's several different types out there. There's, there's several companies that make softer saddles that are made out of like foam or fabric or leather the saddle itself is relatively soft and i've never been a fan of those i like the ones that you know they're they're made out of they have sides on them made out of wood like you put on a mule or something like that and they have kind of a cross on top and there's a lot of different varieties out there and then the panniers um our favorite our favorite panniers are made by stan evil up in colorado buckhorn llama company and they're they're basically a canvas a, you know rectangular canvas bag um and you you know you put your stuff in the bag you know you have to pack it with some sense you don't want sharp stuff poking in the side and stuff like that but we'll put typically somewhere between 35 to 40 pounds per side on the llama and so when i say a llama's carrying 70 pounds i mean they're carrying 70 pounds of pannier and stuff not count, counting their saddle. I don't count the saddle. I just want to know how much I'm putting in the pannier. So, so that's a lot of stuff. And so you just hang that on the, you know, you put the saddle on. We use saddles that just have two cinches that go underneath. So you have one cinch that goes right underneath their sternum and you get it ridiculously tight. Um, their, their sternum, they actually lay down on their sternum on the ground. It's very, it's hard. There's like a callus there. So you get that, that sternum strap really tight. And then there's another one that kind of goes around their belly and you don't have to get that one so tight because it's, it kind of just keeps it saddle from sliding forward. It's that front one that really keeps it from twisting from side to side. And you balance those panniers to within, you know, one to two pounds so that they're not, you know, walking down the trail crooked or something like that. So I have a scale, you know, like a fishing scale, you know, that'll pick up the panniers with as we're loading them up and getting balanced out. And then you can tie like sleeping pads or other lightweight stuff on top of those of this saddle and the panniers as well and then you just lead them down the trail and you know they like to walk in a line and so um you just one person goes with one llama and the next person goes with the next llama or you can string them together you know i mean if you look at some of bo Beatty's videos you'll see them strung together like 10 llamas in a string i mean you're kind of asking for a wreck if things get too crazy but but um and you just get them where they're going and a llama a trained pack llama will go anywhere you can go where you don't have to use your hands to climb up or down it. They're amazingly sure-footed. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then, then, you know, you get to camp, take the panniers off. And we, we like to, like, Stan's panniers because they kind of they stand up on their own. They're real heavy-duty canvas. And so you can work out of them just like you're working out of a, you know, a, a box, you know, so you can have your kitchen stuff in there and, and, and your food in there and you can just leave it in those panniers and you can get in and out of them real, real easy. And, um, you know, set up your camp. And then basically what we typically do is we'll um, either stake them out or just put a stake in the ground, like um, the kind of stake you'd use to stake out a dog. I don't know anybody that actually does that, but you can buy these stakes at Walmart or whatever. To where they rotate around, put them on like a 15-foot lead, let them graze there. Or you can tie them to a, you know, a small tree or something like that where you just put the, put the end of the lead around the, the um, base of the tree. And they are amazing. They don't – I know – I personally know people have had mules kill themselves because they got tangled up in a rope 
and you guys might have heard stories like yep, that too. I have. I've never heard of a llama doing that. And I mean, I've come back to camp and had a llama that was just so tangled up, and he's just laying there, like, "Well, I'm glad you finally showed up." You know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the things, one of the first things we do for training a llama is get a halter on them and put them on about a 15 foot lead and just tie them up to a, a fence and let them just get used to getting their feet tangled up and getting untangled. And it usually takes, you know, two sessions of maybe three hours a piece where they finally go, Oh, I just, I just give it a little slack and pick my feet up and I get out of it. They're really smart about getting themselves untangled, but sometimes they'll get tangled up in a bush or something like that. And they, they, they don't panic. They'll just lay there and go, well, I'm stuck. Somebody will come get me eventually. That's, and so, um, that's you good. know, for, we do a lot of our packing in the wintertime in the desert. I just love going out in the superstitions with the Mazatzals or, you know, out in the, we've gone out in the Eagle Tail Wilderness and just all kinds of desert places. And so we'll bring extra food then because you're out in the desert. There's not a lot to eat. And um, we bring pelletized um, like alfalfa pellets. And typically I'll fill a gallon bag, a gallon Ziploc bag, and that's about five pounds. And that's, that's enough supplemental feed for two llamas for easily for a day, maybe a day and a half or something like that, as long as there's some other stuff to eat. But they'll eat sticks, leaves, dry leaves. They're, they don't need, like, green grass. I mean, they'll, they'll eat it, but sometimes they'd rather eat pine needles or juniper needles or something like that. So, so they're, they're just super easy to care for, and they just sit there. They don't need any attention. You know, they're, they're perfectly happy just being tied out, you know, and it's, they're, 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 they're too easy. That's part of the allure, right? Where they, they're just so much less work, uh, you know, than, than the big equines, right? Yeah. I mean, I always say the only problem is you can't ride them, but you know, I don't mind hiking either. And I, I don't have to put shoes on them. They don't spook. I mean, they, you know, every animal, especially prey-type species like like um, llamas or any other ungulate, they're, they have a natural tendency to be afraid of things because they're like, oh, what's that over there? The llamas learn really fast. And so, you know, you you see a cow or something like that, and they just kind of watch it. We were, Janice and I just did 100 miles on the Arizona Trail in March, and um, I'm going, I was going through a gate and my one llama, he's looking up this hill like something's interesting up there. I look up this steep hill and there's a javelina up there. And it's a ways up there. He'd spotted that javelina, you know, way, I mean, I would have never seen it. And then we walked down the trail a little farther and I look back and he's looking down the hill. We're on the side of a pretty steep part of the hill and he's looking down the hill and there's a javelina down there 300 yards away. He's watching it. But he didn't paint anything, you know. Yep. And they, how was their smell? Because obviously javelinas put off are very pungent. Is yeah. are the llamas' sight? I know, and their ears, their hearing, and their sight are phenomenal. But how is their sense of smell? Yeah, I mean, I think they have a great sense of smell, but they're definitely a visual-oriented animal for sure. Because they, you know, they come from South America, the Altiplano in South America, where there's you know, it's it looks like Mars in a lot of places. You know, they can see forever. Mm-hmm. And, they like being in the open. If you have if you have a field and there's a hill in it, they'll go stand on that hill. They want to be able to see, and so they're they're very visual. So sometimes when we'll we'll stake them out. We had a, one of our guys right now. He's a he's a really he's not even three years old yet, but he's already turned out to be a good packer. His name's Togo. We had him on a trip when he was just two and a half, and um, we had him staked out, 
and he was really nervous. The, the, they do a humming thing, you know, and couldn't figure out why he was nervous. Oh, he couldn't see the other three llamas over there. He wanted to be able to see the other guys, you know, so we just moved him where he could see the other guys. He was fine, you know, and so they're, they're, they're herd animals. You can't have just one llama. Um, you need to have two. I mean, people will, will keep llamas with goats or horses or things like that. But if you're out packing on the trail, you need to have, they need to have a buddy with them because they, there are a few examples where they're not that way. We used to have one that, that he, he could go out by himself, but most of them, they get kind of nervous if they're by themselves. And, you know, after you've, you've been on the trail for a couple of days with these llamas and then you go, Oh, you know, I, I gotta go take a, take a dump or something, you know? So here, hold this llama and you'll walk off and that your llama that you've been leading for the last few days gets worried about you when you, he can't see you. Interesting. They start, they, they start humming. They're like, Oh, where'd he go? Where'd he go? You know? <laughs> so, so they're, they're very observant. They're very smart. Um, and they're, the one thing they're not is they're not cuddly. You know, they look, oh, these fuzzy things with big eyes and big eyelashes. Nope. They don't want to be petted. They just soon you keep the least arm's distance from them. <laughs> so in that respect, I don't think they make great pets, you know, for people who want to have like a cuddly, you know, animal. So they can get another pack if they want that, right? You know, I don't know much about alpacas. We have some neighbors that have had alpacas almost as long as we've had llamas. And um, they're kind of getting out of the alpaca business because there really isn't an alpaca business. So alpacas don't really have an end use in North America. The, again, they were traded around by wealthy people. You know, oh, I've got this great, you know, stud that I'm going to sell for $100,000 or whatever. But they had no functional use. The alpacas were bred for fiber. Yep, That's it. Just the fleece. And, uh, yeah, and well, there's no alpaca fiber industry in North America. There's not enough alpacas that have uh, you know mills for that kind of thing. But I, I asked the neighbor. I said, "Our alpacas pretty smart." He goes, "Man, they're so dumb." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Well, you ought to know because you've had them for 25 years. You know, you ought to know." But um, he says, "No, they're they're just not very smart." And and I'd say llamas are exactly the opposite. I'll, I have I have my ultimate story of how smart llamas are. Uh, we had this guy, Cisco, the one I was telling you we just sold to these guys in Wyoming. I'll give them a shout-out to 307 Llama Company outside of Laramie, Wyoming. They're just starting up their own llama business up there, and um, they've got a good couple young guys. They've got a good operation started. But um, they, this llama we just sold them, his name is Cisco, and Cisco was – we were out in the desert, like the low desert in Arizona. And I don't know if you've ever been out there in, you know, Bighorn Sheep Country, but the – the kangaroo rats will dig burrows underground yep. and you can see their little holes, you know, there'll be like a little sand hill and there'll be little holes there. Well, if you walk across that stuff, you'll collapse their burrows and you'll fall in like a foot. You just about blow out an ACL every time you do it, you know? And so I'm walking along and I walk through one of those and I, Oh dang it. You know, cause I'm looking around, you know, I, I kind of fall through and he falls through, you know, and, well, later we're walking, all of a sudden he puts on the brakes. And I'm like, what is going on with you? Like, he never gives us any trouble on the trail. And I'm like, pulling and pulling. He's like, nope. And I realized I was about to walk through another one of those little <laughs> kangaroo rat minefields. And he saw it coming. He had exactly one experience walking through one of those kangaroo rat minefields. And the next time I was going to walk through one, he's like, nope, not me, not going through there. Wow. And I was like, wow. And my wife because women are smarter than men. She figured it out. I'm like, maybe he doesn't want to walk through there. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I turned to the right, walked him around it. He was fine. I'm like, maybe that was it. So I see another one of these things coming again. I'm like, I'm just going to walk straight at this and see if he stops again. He did it again. 
Interesting. Like, well, that's incredible. He's, smart. he's smarter than I am. Man, that's, <laughs> you know? yep, that's and true. for him to put that together, like, oh, that spot with those holes, that's bad. After one experience, that'll tell you how smart llamas are. Yeah, that's crazy. Then what about water? <laughs> so how much water do they need? Typically, like when yes. you go back out there, are they, are they dependent on water? Or can they go a couple days without water? Really depends on the temperature, you know, and and how much they're working. So, like I say, we do a lot of stuff in the desert in the wintertime, and sometimes they won't drink for a couple of days. You give them water every day, but they'll just like, yeah, not interested. And um, other times, they'll drink two or three gallons at once. You know, they are, they are in the camel family, and, and they, they, the way camels, we used to have camels too, by the way, but the way camels store water is that it's actually the red blood cells that, and their, their blood volume increases. And so their red blood cells expand, their, the amount of water in their blood increases so they can drink, the camels can drink like five gallons of water at once if they've been depleted. And then that'll go down over time. So they can lose something like 20 to 30% of their body weight in water loss without dying. If you lose 5% of your body weight in water loss, you're in trouble. Um, and so llamas are kind of the same way, but not as extreme. And so um, I can say that when it's hot, uh, and you know, I try to give them as much water as they want. Um, and sometimes, like I say, they'll drink two gallons at once, and then the next day they won't drink anything. But um, I know that they they can go without water better than a lot of other animals. But I try never to force it. But that you know, we have you know, when we're out in the desert, sometimes you have dry camps and stuff like that. Well, I got llamas to carry the extra water too, <laughs> you know. So. We have these, you can get these 10 liter bags. I think they come from MSR. They're like water, you know, water bags that you fill up, but they're very tough. So 10 liters is two and a half gallons. And so if we know we're going to have a dry camp, you know, I'll just fill up one of those and put it in there. And that's, what is that, 20 pounds. And um, then if, you know, you get to wherever you're going to camp, you give them some water if they want it, they want it. If not, you got extra water, you know. But no. they, they definitely use less water than other other livestock. But I wouldn't want anybody to think, oh, they're like camels. They can go days without water. And even camels can't unless they've been conditioned for it. So, If you just, go into a camp that you know there's a pond or a stock tank or something, that's adequate for them if you're keeping them well, there? Yeah. I mean, we basically bring their – these collapsible little collapsible like two gallon buckets um i can't remember where i got them like a, back when popular remember popular outdoor yep. outfitters where, oh, yeah yep you know these buckets have lasted forever that place has been out of business for 15 or 20 years but Absolutely. but i go fill up that bucket i go walk over to the llama put it down in front of them or sometimes i'll just hold it in front of their nose and they either drink or they don't drink and if they drink they get as much as they want and everybody gets a chance and then that's it. Then I, then I don't, I, they don't have to be going to water all the time, you know? And so whatever water's there, you know, they'll drink it. Sometimes you, you walk them up to a Creek and they'll just stand in it. You know, they're like, oh, I'm not thirsty, you know? So, um, you know, they're like, you know, they say about horses, you can lead a llama to water, but you can't make them drink. So. <laughs> other than the, other than the pellets for supplemental feed, when you're in that low desert, what are they eating? Um, like I said, they, they will eat cat claw, <laughs> they will eat wow. mesquite. They love mesquite beans. Absolutely love mesquite beans. And, and, uh, they, you know, how in the, in the springtime you get that green grass underneath the mesquite trees and stuff like that. So we'll always look for a camp that's got some of that. 
and they'll eat that, but they, it's not really good for them to eat that much really fresh green stuff. I think it's too high in nitrogen, too rich for them. And so they'll, they'll start eating dry leaves. And, you know, like some places will camp by a creek, you know, where there'll be cottonwood, just dry cottonwood leaves on the ground. They'll eat those cottonwood leaves. You know, they'll eat the Bermuda grass that grows around springs sometimes. Um, you know, just they're, they're really browsers more than they're grazers. Okay. Uh, and so they, they actually, like here at our house, you know, some of them have juniper trees in their pasture areas. And they, they love to eat the bark off the juniper trees. They actually need fiber in their diet, you know, and, and they'll, um, you know, if I trim a, trim a tree, I'll just throw the branches over the fence and they'll eat the leaves off of the branches. They'll eat the bark off of the branches and things like that. So they, they can eat almost anything. That's crazy. Very resilient animals. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, camels take it to the next level, too. When we had our camels, I, I watched our camels just eat dry pine cones. I watched them eat entire prickly pear cactus, not just the fruit, spines and all, and just loved it. <laughs> camels, wow. camels are next level survivors. So they're made for arid environments for sure. <laughs> a friend of mine who's a camel guy, he's had camels as long as we've had llamas. He he goes, There are zero underfed camels anywhere in North America. <laughs> 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 it's that, that simple and camels on the contrast to llamas we loved our camels they had the best personalities they were named wallace and ladmo and i know oh, you guys that's classic i love it yeah and um and they had the personalities too but um they they loved us like we'd go out there and brush them and pet them and they'd fall asleep you could sit on them and cuddle with them and but they were just too big for the business they're too big to have the general public out leading them around and stuff Those and they very big they, animals yeah, and they, they kind of need more room than than what we had to. You know, if I had forty acres, I'd have I'd have a bunch of camels because they were just they were just fun to have. So, yeah, that was that was one of those things. You know, I think I said earlier about um, you know you never know until you try. You know, we was like, man, we need to try camels, and we absolutely loved it. That's cool. But we finally, we finally sold them. How do they do in in the ranging environment with like you mentioned, Bo Beatty being out of Idaho Falls, I think he's yeah. in. Yeah. And obviously colder climate there, you know, from kind of South America, Patagonia, yeah. uh, and Peru. And they just, are used I'm, to a higher elevation and colder climate. Yavapai uh, County, where you're at, is definitely much colder and cooler than Phoenix. But you mentioned going, you know, superstitions yeah. and stuff. Yeah, they're, they are unbelievably tolerant of a wide range of climate. So you think, you know, they're living at 14,000 feet down the Altiplano where it gets really hot and really cold and really windy. Mm. And there's no, there's no shade anywhere there. <laughs> there's no trees. And, and they, that's, that's where, you know, they were bred, you know, the, the wild version of a llama is called a guanaco. Right. Guanaco are, you know, a wild animal that llamas came from, but they live out in this just really arid country and it gets very cold and it gets very hot and it's very dry and llamas in North America are no different. Um, you know, they've yeah, obviously been de domesticated. They have a lot more wool. Um, they don't, most of them don't shed their wool. Um, good pack llamas, you want them to have shorter wool just cause it's kind of a pain having a lot of wool to deal with. And if, but that's not a problem, you can shear them, but most of ours, we don't have to shear, but you know, even here where I live, we'll have days, Two summers ago, we had a pretty hot summer here where we had 
know, you, you guys won't think it's bad, but we probably had 15 or 20 days where it was, you know, 105-ish or something like that. And you look out there, and it'd be 105, 107 degrees. There'll be a llama laying in the sun with his belly facing the sun, you know? <laughs> and it's like, okay, I guess they can take it, you know? Yeah. And I honestly think they're trying to build up vitamin D or something because they don't have a lot of fur on their bellies. And so I think they're just absorbing the sunlight or something because that's, you know, how, how you make vitamin D take, have to be out in the sun. Right. Um, and that wool really insulates them from both the heat and the cold. And I always joke that you can take your llama to a car wax car wash and spray them down you still can't get a skin wet because it like their their wool is very interlocked it's not real oily like sheep wool is um but it's re really interlocked and it's it's an amazing fiber type and I, I can't really talk about the fiber too much but if you want to learn about it go to stan evil's um buckhorn llama company page he's got a, another business called altiplana which he sells uh, clothing made out of llama and alpaca wool. And he talk, there's a YouTube video where he talks about the properties of the wool, but it's amazing that it they they can sit out in the rain and just they look like a you know like a wet cat. Get up, shake off. They're dry. There's just the outer half inches wet, and um, they'll be sitting out there in the snow, pile up on their backs. They don't care. It doesn't bother them. And and I, I mean, we've sold llamas recently. We sold llamas to people in. Wyoming, Oregon, Montana. Um, we sold some females to a guy in Montana in Bozeman. And he, when he drives down here, he goes, yeah, it's 35 degrees when I'm, or 35 below zero today while I'm leaving to come down here. I'm like, oh, man, I hope these llamas are okay. And I told him, I said, I'm not selling you because one of them was a, was a mom and a baby. I said, I'm not selling you this baby unless you have a barn that you can keep, keep, keep him in because he's not going to be ready for this temperature shock. Yeah. You know, he gets these llamas up there that have been living in Arizona, and they're standing out in the field when there's when it's 20 below, instead of being in the barn by choice. You know, wow. and Bo Beatty says the same thing. He's like, he's built this giant barn at his place. You know, look out there and there'll be a bunch of them standing on the field. It'll be 20 below and windy. And they're just like, no, we're good. <laughs> so, so they deal with the cold quite well. The heat, like I said, around here it doesn't bother. But you know, they kind of lay around just like anybody would. They don't want to get too fired up and typically i my kind of rule is you don't want to work them real hard if it's more than about 90 95 degrees like you can still go out packing with them no problem but if you're busting up a big hill it's got a lot of a lot of elevation gain they will overheat because they have all that wool right so it insulates them and so you want to stop and let them cool off you know they'll they'll pant they'll start panting let you know they're getting hot and um like I said, there's not a lot of hair on the belly, so having some wind flow through their bellies helps cool them off and stuff. So you just don't want to push them hard when it's hot. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't want to push myself when it's hot either. <laughs> exactly. You know, if it's getting that hot, you're not going to want to go that hard either. Right? No. I met a lady from Texas who, um, who she was, you know, she was getting out of lawn business. She was in her late seventies, and she said they had a lot of problems with heat in Texas. And I'm, oh, I can only think that it was because of the humidity. You know, because right. llamas really aren't. They're not well adapted for human places. You know, it's very dry where they are. So they, they do really well in Arizona. And, you know, they could live in Phoenix, you know, no problem. I mean, I have a, a buddy that has llamas and he started out his llama business in Phoenix in the 1980s. Um, I bought a couple llamas that a guy had down in Phoenix. Um, they were living fine, you know, but you, again, you know, it's just not nice. And you could definitely cause a problem if you work them really hard when it's hot. Yep.
So the shade and water is important, just like any animal that you'd keep outside. Like, yeah. like and, you said. Yeah. And you know, they'll seek out shade if they want it. And if they don't want it, you know, like you say, sometimes it's over a hundred degrees and they're laying in the sun, you know, but they, they like to have shade when they, when they're ready for it too. So. And you, you, we touched on it a little bit when you are going in there on a hunt, utilizing them, are you carrying just like a little day pack and your weapon of choice and they're carrying everything else or how does that work? Yeah. What I, I mean, I, I'm, I typically carry whatever my day hunting pack would be when I'm packing in with the llamas. So it might look like I'm carrying a lot, but it's like I got my optics and my tripod and pad to sit on and my lunch and some water and stuff like that in it. Because that's, you know, if, if I, you know, if I see a deer and I want to go after it, I'm going to tie that llama up and I'm out of there. I don't have to dig into the packs and get all the stuff out. Right. But sometimes when we're just out on a hiking trip, we just, we'll just carry like a camelback with some water in it and maybe, you know, a, a jacket and some snacks, you know, and let the llamas carry the rest. And, you know, typically with hunting, you know, I'll, I'll just pack in, set up a camp. And I, I like to just stay in one place for a few days, you know, and, and, um, set up a camp and the llamas just hang out in camp and then i just go out and do my day hunting you know from there just as if i was hunting out of my truck or something you know where i don't have to carry a day's worth of stuff and if you got an elk you can go back grab them and then they exactly they could can they carry with you having to separate so that the equal sides on the pannier are, are right. you know 35 35 what would you do on an elk quarter like a rear elk quarter if you got one of those down do you debone it and try to put the meat in game bags to keep i've, I've done both you know and here's the sad story i've killed a bunch of elk i've never packed out my own elk with my own llamas <laughs> just those are people <laughs> you know? and so i i've every elk i've ever packed out myself i've packed out on my back <laughs> so um but but yeah the so typically what i'll do if i don't have to go very far let's say it's only like two miles to where I can get a truck or something like that. I'll throw, you know, a quarter on each side, um, like a, fr a front shoulder or something like that. And they can carry, I've carried as much as 125 pounds on a llama and I, and I could probably carry a little bit more, but I'm not going to do that if it's super gnarly, you know, where they right. might slip and fall or if it's really far. And then if it's going to be farther than that, I'm going to bone it out and, and just that it's easier to balance everything out. Right. So you, you know, you, you just try to get, because otherwise you got this big old leg sticking off the back. Right. Back. My daughter's, my oldest daughter got her first elk. Um, it's, a, it's a great story, but um, she shot with a muzzleloader at like, I don't know, 12 yards. It was awesome. And yeah. um, it was a pretty good sized bull. It was like a 320 bull. And, you know, we, we hung it, you know, skinned it, hung it, hiked back to the truck. It was probably two and a half, three miles back to the truck, drove home, got the llamas, drove back out there, hiked back out, got the meat and packed out with the llamas. And I was so proud of her. She was, I think she was 15 years old and she was, we were up 22 hours straight that day by the time we got done with all this. And we were packing out with the llamas. At one point she goes, huh, huh, where are we? And I was like, well, right where we saw the rattlesnake a little while ago, you know, when we were hiking in. Cause it was like, midnight she had fallen asleep while she was walking wow, <laughs> wow. my that, kids are tired. tougher than your kids yeah no kids <laughs> it, 
we'd been up 22 hours straight that day um, because we got up at like four in the morning to hike in to where we were going to try to get this elk and got it and then hiked out and then it was way late at night by the time we hiked out it was like two in the morning by the time we got back to the truck oh, that's um, but we, we packed we packed out that elk with two llamas so incredible and how are yeah. they with the predators with our black bears and mountain lions yeah interesting um knock on wood i haven't had any direct experience with that i just heard a couple of days ago that somebody lives near me had a couple of alpacas killed by a mountain lion um and we've had in the prescott area and i just found out because i was talking to a game of fish guy after i heard this pacing area lots of lions coming into town right now like just a ridiculous number of lions coming into the urban interface kind of area both in the pacing area and prescott area so i don't know what's going on but i'm a little bit concerned because lions will kill a llama and i know of llamas being killed elsewhere i just haven't had that happen to me but um bears i also oh, i just heard about that oh um it was in the white mountains this was a few years ago but there was a bear that was killing somebody's llamas up there so it, it can happen you know predators they have real simple brains you know that if they find you know when a bear figures out there's food in the trash the bears get going back to the trash right and so same thing's true about lions and llamas and they'll, they'll you know once they figure out there's there's something they can eat there they'll keep coming back so that's what i'm concerned with here because like where i live there's you know i know there's lions around here but now that there there's a lion at least one that's starting to kill alpacas i'm kind of concerned but um in the backcountry i really don't worry about it much um you know the llamas are novel enough and those are wild bears and wild lions right they're not used to that human urban interface situation sure so i don't really worry about it too much but it, it could happen you know it's and I mean, I've, I've actually been stalked by lions to within feet of me on two occasions. Um, and so that'll I, get and my I, hair standing up. Yeah. And so, you know, one of them was, you know, I was glassing and this, I didn't see the lion coming, but just by chance I knocked my backpack over and that scared the lion. And it was, it was just feet from me and they're, they're absolutely silent, you know? And that was a funny story, but I don't need to go into the hunting stories now, but and uh, the other lion, I was sitting in a ground blind, archery deer hunting, sitting on a tank, and this lion just came right in, looked right at me and right in my face. I had a camo head net on it, didn't know what it was looking at, you know? Ugh. I was like, what, what's that funny-looking thing right there? <laughs> you know? So, so I have great respect for lions and their silent approach. And, yep. you know, they, and I mean, you, you know that lions can kill big bull elk, you know? For sure. Llama be no problem. They're just, they're just different enough prey that a, I think a wild lion's going to go, I don't know what the heck that thing is. Right. And, and you mentioned before the alarm call, they make a really shrill alarm call if they see something they don't like. And that can, if nothing else, it alerts you that there's something going on. But it can also scare away, you know, predators too. I was talking to somebody who was hunting grizzly country, and they had a llama scare off a grizzly doing that. So. I was going to say, yeah, in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming, yeah. they're going to come across much bigger bears than what we have, and it would yeah. be interesting yeah. to see how, how they react because I know a lot, they, the, the horses require a lot of training and patience in order for them to, to not spook and buck off their rider um, when seeing that, or you got to get out of there prior to it coming. But Yeah, llamas are less likely to run first 
they're more likely to get alerted and make a lot of noise, which is nice because <laughs> you have some warning. Um, whereas often a horse is just going to go, what? I'm out of here, right? Their, their first reaction is just take off. And so that's good. And I mean, I've been hiking before with llamas and all of a sudden they just put on the brakes and start alarm calling. You look over, there's a coyote over there. You know, they, they see him. And here I have a big old, you know, spotlight that I have to keep in the house. And if I hear an alarm call in the middle of the night, you bet I'm getting out, jumping out of bed and grabbing that spotlight to go see what's going on. Yep. Have any coyotes or anything like that come in and tried to harm any of the babies when they've been born? Yeah. Uh, that's one thing I worry about is the babies, you know? Um, so a few years ago we had a, a two day old baby and I'm on one end of the house. My wife's on the other end of the house and both of us saw the same thing happen. I saw the, the females are all together with the babies. I saw the girls on one end of the pasture start running one direction. She saw the girls on the other end of the pasture running the other direction. And we both came running out. My wife and I both came running out the opposite ends of our house. Like, what's going on out here? Because we knew there was something up. Their coyote had got in there to try to get that baby. And all these females, adult females, had that coyote pinned up against the fence. And they were going to kill it. And... Um, I ran up to the fence and that started the llamas enough that the coyote got away and the coyote ran just mock 10 and dove through the field. We had field fence on part of the pasture. And so you, I don't know if you know what field fence is, but it's got like, I don't know, six inch squares in it, about two feet off the ground between the wire, you know, the wires got six inch holes. That coyote dove through that one of those six inch holes at a dead run. Fence went twang as he wow. went through it, you know. <laughs> Coyote but, Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, so the so the, the llamas will kill coyotes if you know, especially if you get a bunch of them in there. They they use them for guard animals for sheep herds and stuff like that. Oh, I didn't know that. And, yeah, and so they they will they will um, you know they're aggressive towards coyotes. Bobcats. Bo told me he's come out in his his place before and had just flat bobcat on the ground where the, the females just stomped it to death. Crazy. But and you know, babies buying, are called Krias or is, am I pronouncing yeah. that right? Krias. Yeah. Yeah. And how and big just, are they when they come out? I mean, they can't like any, they're big, they're, <laughs> so, they're pretty big, but they still gangly and long legged and kind of goofy like most babies. Right. Yeah, they're they're all legs. It's it's really funny. We just had a, our second baby of the year two days ago, and uh, she it's our first girl we've had in like three years. But she's she was thirty six pounds, and um, you know probably I don't know three feet tall. Like they're just all legs. There's a little skinny body, all legs, but they start filling out pretty quick. <laughs> they, they gain about they gain about half a pound to a pound a day. They they gain weight really fast. So um, nutritious milk. Oh yeah. You know, they, they, um, they got it figured out and, and they're up walking usually within a half hour, an hour, they're standing up and they're nursing. And this little girl, she was running around, you know, kind of awkwardly, but she was running around within two hours of being born. Hmm. It's amazing. Do you have so to keep the males separated? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Are they and just it's, aggressive it's, towards? Yeah. It's, you know, we're <laughs> in some ways we're pretty lucky because, um, we don't have a lot of problems with our males. We have one male that's our main stud and he's a fantastic packer, unbelievably good packer and an unbelievably aggressive breeder. So that's what you want. You know, you want a llama that's like, he's just going to get it done. Right. 
but that also means he's aggressive towards the other males. So we have to keep him separate from all the rest of the other males. Or he he he's like, no, I'm the I'm the guy here. You guys, right. I'm going to beat you all up, you know. <laughs> and, and so they and they chase each other around. They try to bite each other on the legs and other places, which you don't worry, you don't want to be bitten if you know what I mean. And, um, sure. And they scream while they're doing it, just just scream and sound, and they neck wrestle and they knock each other down. It's it's quite a quite a show. And all the boys will do that some, but it's more just pecking order, you know, yep. just just reinforcing pecking order. But if we put him with the other guys, it's just a knockdown drag out. We have to keep him separate. But all the other guys we keep together. And the shocking thing is, all the other guys they're only separated by sixteen feet from the girls. And the fact that they're getting along with those girls right there is pretty astonishing. But I, I want to keep them together because, because llamas have pecking orders. The females have it too. And so if you take one llama out and you go do something with them, when you bring them back in, there's going to be a fight as the pecking order gets reestablished, right? <laughs> and so you put it, you, if you have a llama that's separated like a, from all the other Like in how short a time, sorry. Oh, if you take them out, you know, you go just go for a hike for an hour or something like that. And bringing them back and the, it's already changed that much? They're like, oh, man, he came back, you know, and there'll be the dust will fly. I mean, it's just for a couple of minutes or something like that. Wow. So by keeping them all together, that means I can just put them all in the trailer together. There's not going to be a bunch of fighting going on or whatever, you know. And so that's really good. Um, they just, they once they have their pecking order figured out, they get along just fine. And so I want it, I just want them to be, you guys just keep reinforcing your pecking order with little little fights during the day if you need to. But I don't want any big fights. And so, so far we're doing really good. You know, and that's not always the case. Like some people won't even have females and males on the same property. And if you don't have females around, the fighting is a lot less severe. Um, you can keep studs with other studs and stuff like that. But, so you have you know. three separate enclosures, then one for the main guy, one for all the males, and then one for the females? Really, we have four because we have the adult guys in one area. And that's anything from one and a half to however old. And then we have the yearlings that just got weaned. They have them by themselves because we don't want them to get mixing up with the bigger guys. And it wouldn't be a big deal. And then we have that one stud that we keep separate. And then the females and the babies, they all hang out together. So Awesome. Yeah. And do, they're not yeah. uh, flood irrigated pastures, but no. how much do you have to supplement on your <laughs> property? So, we, you know, we have to feed... 365 days a year we don't have pasture here we don't have any irrigation and really just trying to grow grass here is tough enough um you know we have a small pasture that we let the girls on you know just so they have a nice place for the babies and, and all that but the rest of them are just dry ground and the the real th there's an advantage to this and that is they don't get parasites and that's that's a that's a real good thing because llamas again come from a very arid environment that doesn't support parasites very well and so you know and same thing with camels you know people a lot of people have camels in the midwest and the south and they're constantly fighting parasites because they have them on these very green pastures so those parasites can live in those pastures their eggs the parasite eggs survive but uh, but llamas really weren't meant to be like that you know and so it's something you do have to worry about a little bit now in idaho it's probably not as bad because it freezes so hard right they got permafrost up there for crying out loud um but in warm humid climates you can have a lot more parasites so we don't have any parasite problems here um that's probably the only advantage <laughs> to not having pasture because it in arizona it can be expensive to feed on at least feed a whole pile of them like we have 
Are you feeding them alfalfa or hay or? We, we feed grass hay, typically orchard grass or timothy grass. Alfalfa, some people feed straight alfalfa, but that's, they're not, like I said, they, they actually prefer a higher fire, fiber, lower protein diet. And so grass hay is, is really the best that you can do. And unfortunately, the, the orchard grass and timothy grass stuff comes from out of state, so it's very expensive here. The good news is pound for pound llamas are much more efficient than horses and, and whatnot because they're ruminants like cattle. They actually have a three chambered stomach instead of four, but they're ruminants, so they're very efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so a big llama is going to eat between five to ten pounds of grass of dry grass hay a day or something like that. Um, and so the, the the problem is that you know last year at one point we had twenty six llamas and we sold a bunch, but we're building back up now because we're having babies again. So. It, feeding a bunch of llamas can get expensive. So I actually drive to Colorado. Um, both my daughters live in Colorado right now. And so I'll drive up to visit my daughter in Colorado and I'll just bring back four or five tons of hay on my trailer. And, you know, it's cheaper than, than buying it here. But I'd say if you're buying hay at the feed store in Arizona, it's going to cost you about $500 a year to feed a llama. That's my estimate at the prices that we have. And by the way, the prices have more than doubled in the last three years. That's what Just everybody's like, been saying for horses. Yeah. yeah. And so lots of people are getting rid of their horses and selling off cattle and stuff. Cause you know, we had the prices just went up, but you know, llamas, like I say, are, are more efficient pound for pound. And so it, it really cut into our business model though. When, the, you know, it's like being a carpenter and having you know, or a contractor and having the price of lumber go up 250%, you know, it's like, you still got to have lumber. Well, we still have to have feed. Exactly. So we're we're spending quite a bit on feed um, feeding these llamas, but for for a person that just wants to have two, three, four llamas, um, it's not that bad. You know, you, you spend more than that on insurance for your side by side, probably. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, it's true. It's true. So and the side llamas, by side can't take you somewhere right. in a lot of places where the llama can. And your llamas will still be packing in ten or fifteen years, and your side by side has long since been retired. You know. And Very true. Llamas lived 20 years, give or take. We had a, a couple llamas that, that were still packing when they were 21, 22 years old. Wow. Um, so you can, you know, you can get your, get your money's worth out of them. You know, typically one of the other problems with being in the breeding business, and I'll just say right now, nobody gets rich breeding llamas. Nobody. Bo Bede has right now this year, I asked him, I said, how many babies you got coming this year? Almost a hundred. He is not getting rich off of those babies. Bo Beatty's operation is most of his money is coming from his guiding operations. Right. I got into it with a woman on, on Facebook, a llama packing page. She's like, Oh, the llama breeders are so greedy. I'm like, let me add you up. Exactly. <laughs> you know what it costs. So you, you, a llama gestation period is a year. It's like, it's literally like Christmas. You have a baby, you breed the mom 12 days later, you wait another year for her to have a baby. And so you go, I don't know what I'm going to get, right? So it's just like a kid waiting for Christmas. I really love it. And uh, so you got a year of feeding that mom, right? At the same time, she's nursing her last baby. Then that baby is mom's going to be nursing that baby for about seven, eight months. Then you separate them, you wean them, and then you're, but you're, you're not even really training the, the boys to be packers yet until, and we'll start doing some easy training when they're a year old, but year and a half, you know, and then two years, and then they're not really ready to be a real packer until they're about three. So you've got four years from the time that 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 llama was conceived till they're a packer. 
where you're feeding them and training them and doing all that kind of stuff. And so, um, it's a lot it's, of time and money. It's a, it's a lot of time. Now the good news is they're really easy to take care of and they're relatively easy to train. If you're, you know, if you have any sense at all, um, they're, they're really pretty easy to train, but a lot of people, it turns out don't have a lot of sense as <laughs> I've found out. But, um, but anyhow, the, the females are ready to breed when they're two. And so, you know, that's, you can start them in breeding, but they're not going to have their first Korea until they're three. So even then there's still not, there's still no payoff from a female. She's two. Now she's having a Korea at three, but you don't get to sell that Korea at best until it's eight months or a year old. And that's an untrained baby. So it's a really slow process. And I'd and, imagine you can't, you can't use them as a pack animal if one of their nursing and they're pregnant, right? Right. Yeah. I recently had a guy that wanted to buy some llamas and we had some packers that we were going to sell because we're trying to make room for the new guys, um, coming up that are, that we're trying to train into being packers. And, and we kind of set a limit on how many llamas we wanted to have on our property. And I had some packers for sale. I'm like, this is a really good price. These guys are trained packers. They got a couple years worth of pack trips on them. No, I'm going to buy females and I'm going to pack with my females and then I'll breed them. And then I can, then I can uh, make my money back. I'm like, Oh, let me explain to you something. <laughs> You know, yep. you can pack with them until they're about seven, eight months pregnant. Then you have to stop. Then they're going to have a baby. And that's that baby is going to be nursing until they're seven, seven, eight months old. And then you can't pack with a female again because now she's seven, now she's seven, eight months along in the next pregnancy. Right. So then the only thing you can do is you can alternate years. Well, the problem is when, if you skip a year of breeding, then it's harder to get them pregnant the next year. They, they need to be bred right away after they have their, their baby. And so people will think, oh, yeah, I'm going to get in the llama breeding business and I'll have my pack llamas. Nope. You're <laughs> just going to be breeding. Ugh. Not when and, the whole business model that you lay out in front of them uh, and, and shed light on, on that. Yeah. yeah. So, it, you know, if you have pasture, you live in Colorado or Idaho or Wyoming or someplace, you got pasture for, you know, six, seven months out of the year, totally different program. And your feed's going to be cheaper there as well because they're, it's grown nearby. You know, although I just was talking to a guy from Oregon um, who's getting into pack llamas. He had goats and he finally got rid of the goats and he's getting into llamas now. And he's paying as much for hay in Oregon as I'm paying here. I'm like, how is that possible? (laughs) They have water in Oregon. Right. But yeah, you know, you had said something earlier about the goats and I don't have any direct experience with pack goats, but I've talked to people that have. And this guy had some hilarious stories about goats but it stops being funny after a while. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like all the goats, he said one, one morning the goats woke up and he and his buddy, their hunters were, were in the tent. The goats woke up and they didn't see anybody around and they panicked. And they went back to the trailhead. Oh, geez. 10 goats just took off. These four guys had to hike back to the trailhead, gather up the goats and bring them back to the camp. There's <laughs> <laughs> another time it was raining and the goats, goats are, you bottle feed them and stuff so that they, you know, they're bonded to you. And, um, the goats were like fighting to get into the tent with them. They didn't want to be out in that awful rainstorm, you know? <laughs> so he said, uh, yeah, just a big fire. And the goats all stood around the fire trying to get warm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, uh, I, I think goats aren't the way I want to go. I'm sure if you've had that much experience and that much training with your llamas and see how well they perform, no matter how much success um, other people have, some people are diehard mules, some people are diehard pack goats, and and yeah. just like those, like what you're talking about, the breed standards. I don't know yeah. much about pack goats at all, other than you know 
minimal research and watching um, a couple people that are big into that. Yeah, and I mean, what what this guy told me is that basically that you you don't really train them, you they bond to you, right? You bottle feed them and stuff, and so they just want to follow you wherever you go. He says that's that's a really nice thing about goats is that there really not much training involved or whatever, you know, and they carry about, I think he said like 40 pounds or something like that, you know, but then you have to have like 10 of them and it's always kind of a circus because they're always getting into stuff and, you know, running around and all that. Your llamas are just like, you tie, you can tie a llama up on a 10 foot lead and it'll sit there for 24 hours and be just like, whatever, I'm good. Yep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so they're, they're pretty, they're, they're much more chill animals That's for good. sure. So my last question is, what would a llama cost roughly? I mean, just a, a ballpark light yeah. high to a low that if somebody's wanting to get into it. What would the, kind of the, the price structure be to, to purchase? Uh, what, a, so from a, a young one and then to one that's a mature one that's a packer, you know, that's already ready to go. It's it's really all over the place, and I've been selling my llamas too cheap. But I, I just I just I'm not a very good businessman. The fact of the matter and. I, I don't want to gouge people, and I, but I am very selective. I'm only going to sell llamas to people that are using for packers. Yep. I'm only going to sell females to people that are going to use them for breeding packers. I'm not selling my pack llama for somebody to have on their hobby farm, you know, sitting out there doing nothing. There's there's a shortage of pack llamas in North America. We need people breeding more of them, and we need people packing with them. And so I'm I'm very selective. And so, you know, just an untrained, let's say, two-year-old of real pack llama stature and genetics is going to be five thousand dollars that's just right off the bat and i've sold trained packers for five thousand dollars and i shouldn't be doing that and i'm sure other llama pack people are going oh i can't believe you're selling them so cheap i a guy in california called me up wanting to buy llamas because i had some for sale there were trained packers and he ended up buying six yearlings so they're two years from being a real packer for six thousand a piece and I was like, man, I would, I would have sold you my Packers for five thousand piece, you know. <laughs> but wow. and he got, he got some good llamas, but they're they're still a couple of years from being there, you know. And I, the most I've paid for a llama, I paid six six thousand dollars for a llama that, you know, is our stud llama now. But he was just a yearling, but he came from amazingly good genetics, and it's it's showing with his performance and with his his offspring. You know, he has he has some amazing offspring. So, so yeah, if you want to get a trained Packer, um, like I I have. I wouldn't sell that guy right now. I wouldn't sell him for $15,000. I wouldn't sell him for $20,000. He's, he's that good. He's throwing almost entirely boys, which what packers want, you know, you can pack with females, but most people want the males. And so you, it'd be hard to talk me into selling that llama for $20,000, you know? Um, but I mean, I heard, and don't quote me on this. If Bo listens to this, I'm sorry, Bo. I heard from somebody else that he was selling like, two-year-old two-year-olds i think for like 6500 bucks so incredible well, i remember you were how talking you about pay? how randy newberg kind of brought it to the limelight of introducing everybody to bo Beatty and and his company and utilizing the pack llamas and i remember listening to one of their podcast episodes that he he goes bo I'm a businessman i have a successful hunting company successful tv show I love using yours. You are renting them for way too cheap. You are selling them way too cheap. You yeah. are loving loving them and educating everybody on them, but you got to look at it like you got to make money on it. This isn't 
to to go net zero on it. Yeah, and honestly, you know, we're my wife and I are, you know, we're we're trying to make a profit at it, and, and we really don't. I mean, the the cost of just the cost of ownership. I mean, besides just feeding llamas, you know, you have vet bills. Although we don't have a lot of vet bills with llamas, they don't get hurt, they don't get sick that much. I do my own vaccinations and things like that, but we have. We have to have insurance. We have to have permits. You know, we have forest service permits. You know, we have liability insurance and stuff like that. We're we're fixing trucks. We have you know, God, like six trailers here. You know, I'm building fences. I'm you know, there's just all this. The overhead cost for having a llama business is quite high sure. for somebody, some guy that is a hunter or some family that wants to get out there owning a couple of llamas. Not that high. Way cheaper than owning horses or mules. Like not even in the same order of magnitude. So, um, it's just the llama business is not a great business, you know, <laughs> and, you and Bo is so enthusiastic and, and he is, he's the Pied Piper of pack llamas and he's not losing money, but he's investing back into his company all the time. And, and he, you know, he, t he took pity on us because he knew that, you know, we were, when we were looking to get llamas. Um, you know, I called him up. I'm like, man, can't you just send me a couple packers? You know, and he goes, I can't. Mine are all working. I need them. And he says, but I'll sell you some females. You know, and you can start you can start breeding breeding some more. And he says, and I'm going to give you a didn't give them to me, but he says I'm going to give you a selection of really wide range of genetics, really some really good llamas, because I want other people besides me to be breeding pack llamas. We need pack llamas being bred all around North America. So that more people have access to them, and so That's I'm, awesome. I'm indebted to him for helping us get started in this, and we're really, really proud of the llamas that we're that we're producing now. Um, the problem is, my wife, especially, you know, 30 years teaching, you know, in public school, she's like, I want to be retired, retired. <laughs> yep, right. I, don't oh, yeah. to, I don't have another business, yeah. and so getting back to our business, you know, we used to do a ton of day hikes. And we're really cutting back on that because they, we really weren't making money on it. You know, a, a two-hour day hike for us was six hours out of our day, just right. our time, not counting overhead, fuel. You know, we're buying food for the people that's provided by a local, you know, right. restaurant and, you know, to have for their lunch when we're out there and stuff like that. And we're just like, man, we're putting so much time into these two- and four-hour hikes, and we're, we're basically losing money at it. And so, you know, we were talking before we started, you know, what we're doing now is we're doing more breeding and we enjoy that. I mean, I really enjoy the breeding and then I'm probably going to start doing more hunting guiding here is the next thing to do. And we have permits to do, you know, just hiking, hiking trips and stuff like that, not hunting related, but, um, I, you know, I, I, I've got my guiding stuff, you know, all in order and whatnot. So the idea is to start taking people on these adventure hunting trips like I, I you know I, I told you before i was a guide outfitter back in the 90s and early 2000s and i'm just not going to play that game anymore you know like where's the big one show me the 400 bull you know well i've got 500 trail camera pictures of it so like that that's just not that's not the way i hunt and that's not the kind of service i want to provide people llamas are such a unique way to get in the backcountry you can really truly get into an adventure hunt, you know, I mean, like I say, I go into the superstitions, I go into Mazatzals, I, you know, go on, my daughter's got a bison hunt on the North Rim this year. And so I'm waiting, she's graduating from college in May, and then we're going to be packing with llamas, you know, to go bison hunting. And 
I, I can't wait to see the pictures or video. Wow. If if you do that, obviously that's not the first thing yeah. that's the most important. But yeah, we'll see. I mean, with all the snow up there, I just got an email back from the game fish guy up there about it. He goes, "Yeah, we're just telling everybody to wait a couple more weeks." <laughs> you know, it's pretty because I I got a bison up there in 2018 myself, and um, but this year it's just unbelievably it's just snowed in. You can't get around without a snow cat or something. Yep. But but anyhow, my you know my guiding I actually took down my guiding website page because we started it on a new website host, but I'm going to put up a page here pretty soon. I call it Arizona Backcountry Guides. It's just kind of a, a side thing to the Arizona Backcountry Llamas. But, um, but anyhow, I'll have a website up again here pretty soon. But it's going to be really my philosophy in hunting. Is I, want, I want to help people, like we talked about earlier, I want to help people that are new to hunting um, learn how to hunt in not necessarily a more traditional way, but in a way that's more um this less industrial right like all the tv shows and stuff it's about trail cameras about getting it on video and stuff like that but to me the llamas provide that that ability to go have an adventure and get into the backcountry and wake up wake up in a sleeping bag you know go to sleep after sitting around a campfire you know and and looking at the stars and i just love it you know if i don't get if i don't get days out in the backcountry where i'm you have to wake up and, and out there, getting up and getting in your truck and driving from camp to go hunting, to me, already took something away from the experience, right? You got the radio on, you're drunk bumping down the road, you know, you get out, you're slamming doors and stuff, and you're like, okay, here I am, Elk, where are you? You know, but when you wake up out there in the field with the sounds of nature and you spend the whole day out there and then the sun sets, this is like nothing like it. And so I need my personal life i need days like that i, sure. I start getting crazy and that's the kind of thing i want to provide for other people it's like we need to get out here get away from us if i can find a place where there's no cell phone service that's where we're going to go <laughs> you know yep. so and then you get up in the morning you go where are we going to hunt today well we saw this over here and we saw that over there you know let's go over there and so my my hunting guiding which is what like i said we're going to try to get more into um is going to be um more of that kind of backcountry hunts you know the only animal that i really enjoy still hunting with a rifle is coos deer um because they're so hard to hunt with a bow yep. <laughs> yes, they are. and i hunt with this i hunt mostly with a stick bow too so that's just really stupid but um but like going out into the wilderness and hunting coos deer is just so fun and and that's what I, that's what i've been doing myself for a while and and um you know i i, I started a, a just a little we have a little YouTube channel. God, I can't remember what it's called. Arizona Backcountry Life. That Janice and I just started doing some videos. Um, just the two of us talking about stuff and doing things. And then um, we have Arizona Backcountry Llamas, Instagram, Facebook, and that kind of thing. But really, we both decided, you know, we're going to take a break from the whole social media thing for a few months and, and just go out and have some of our own trips right now. And then um, then I have my uh, my Instagram is Close Range Hunter. And um, I have a little close range hunter podcast, and like we talked about before, my the close range hunter thing is just about you know just trying to trying to get back into woodsmanship and and um, take it. Basically, my my thing is we get too dependent on technology, and we treat hunting too industrially. Yep. You know, with the big big outfitters, and like I said, I have friends that are in that are outfitters, you know, in these big operations and stuff, but. You know, remember the Jimmy John Bowl, right? 
Oh yeah. Yep. That, yep, yep. that, that is the caricature of what I'm trying not to do. Exactly. You know, we've got a, we got a giant bull and more power to Jimmy John. You know, if I had that kind of money, I'd, I'd try to do the same kind of thing, but there's 25 guys there, you know, and, and, um, there's something about, it. yeah, there's something about having adventure. And, and one of the things I found, like, like I say, I was into traditional bow hunting back in the day before it was cool. It's traditional bow hunters. And I'm not bagging. I have a compound bow. I hunt with rifles. <laughs> you know, I'm not bagging on any of that stuff at all. But traditional bow hunters tend to have a, the, more of a sense of adventure. You know, these guys are going to Alaska and camping out in a tent in the, you know, in the tundra hunting caribou or moose or whatever for, I mean, there's, there's a guy, um, Monty Browning. He's like, I don't know, 80 years old or something. And he goes to Alaska and hunts moose, you know, by himself with that's, a stick bow. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I just love that stuff. There's another guy in Colorado, Marv Clinky. He's over 80 years old. He's hunting with a long bow. He's hunting high country mule deer. He killed a moose when he was in his late seventies with a stick bow, you know? Yep. And, um, I don't know. There's just, there, there's, there's just that sense of adventure, you know, that, that you have. And that, and that, that feeling of waking up with the sun, waking up in, you know, when it's quiet out and sneaking up onto that ridge to glass in the morning and then sun comes up and you're like, like what happened to me last year? I'm like, Oh, dang it. I'm going to have to shoot that deer opening morning. Yep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I, I, I packed this last year on my Tuesday around. I packed in with five or six days worth of food just by myself. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to sit in here till I see the buck I want to shoot. And if I don't shoot one, I'm okay with that. I don't have to take one home every time opening morning. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to have to shoot that deer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good problem to have. <laughs> it's happened to me twice. And once it was a, well, it actually happened three times now. Once it was a one thirty non typical. Oh my gosh! And then another time it was like just a hundred inch, but really neat non typical. And then this last time, this last one was like it was like a hundred four, hundred five inch buck, but just really long tines. You're just and I'm like, dang it, I cannot pass that up. No, nope, you know? nope. <laughs> I don't think anyone would, or you're you're a fool yeah. if you do. Well, and, you know, that goes back to one of the reasons why I kind of got out of guiding and hunting back in the early 2000s was I was so obsessed personally with trophy hunting and not, not so much for the reasons that you might think, but I would find an animal. I just had, I was like, oh, I just got to get that one. You know, I, I didn't care about the score so much. It's just like, and I spent six years trying to kill one coos deer with my, with my bow and never got it. And he would have been a new archery world record, would still be the new archery world with archery world record. He was just the giantest buck. And I obsessed over that deer for six years as he kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He eventually died of old age. And it ruined it for me. I was like, you know what? I'm going back to rifle hunting. I went, I got a got a new rifle, drew a October coos deer tag, shot it like an 80 something inch deer the first day of the hunt, and I was so happy. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> yep. And I've killed, I've killed, I had an elk that I scouted for 43 days. I first saw that elk 43 days before the season started. And I kept going back and finding that bull and finding that bull and finding that bull. And I ended up killing him opening morning. Sun was barely cracking over the horizon, probably a hundred yards from where I saw him the very first time. Oh. <laughs> if I, if I, had, if I just showed up and go, Oh, yep, he's still there. But I obsessed over it so much. I had another bull that I, that I killed that I spent. Well, I spent 30 consecutive days scouting for that bull by myself. Wow. 
30 consecutive days. I wasn't out there every day, but I would go out for a couple of days. I'd come home, do my laundry, go back out that afternoon, you know, and I killed him opening morning, you know, and he's a 390 bull, you know, and, and I was just was the biggest bull I've ever killed. And it was the, I, it was like, I was so proud of myself, but at the same time, it was kind of a disappointment in the end. I was like, well, he's dead now. You know, now when you put all, when you put all your eggs in the finish line basket, you find out, no, it's the, it's the process that matters. It was all the scouting that I did and calling that bull in multiple times. The mountain lion counter I had, that's when I was out and I had mountain lion stock within a few feet of me. I was scouting for that bull. I had bears. I was walking past bears every day. I had bears that were so used to seeing me. They would stand there 15 feet away and just watch me walk by because I was walking in and out of this area so often. I'd be walking in out in the dark and the bears would just like, look at me, walk by, you know? <laughs> And those and are I, experiences and, and yeah. you know, different adventures that no one can take away. Right. When I killed the bull, I was like, well, it's over now. That was kind of a disappointment. <laughs> you know? yep. So now I like going to a place and going, well, I wonder what I'm going to see today. <laughs> you know? And if you remember the old A-Team show when they go, oh, I love it when a plan comes together. And so that's the way my coosier hunts have been recently. It's like, I'm just going to find a new spot and go there and that that 130 buck i shot never seen him before in my life never hunted that spot one day in my life didn't scout it at all just go this looks like a good spot to hunt <laughs> sure enough it was i yeah. love it when a plan comes together yeah, exactly <laughs> so, that's awesome. so so that's kind of that's my sort of where i'm at in my hunting these days it's like i like getting in the back country and i like I like having adventures and and um you know you just have to have that possibility of seeing the big one you know, and, and I like going to places where there's, there's, um, you know, you never know what you're going to see. I've been out in the desert, found elk sheds in the saguaro cactus before when I was on a llama pack trip. I'm like, what the heck? Exactly. So it's, it's cool. And that's, that's what I want to expose some of these younger hunters to that, are, you know, the, the late onset hunters, um, you know, I, that are there, they think that they have to have a you know $10,000 rifle and shoot a thousand yards to kill a coos deer, you know? And uh, there's a guy, his name's Ricky. Ricky, if you listen to this, <laughs> um, I've met him several times bear hunting and he's, he and his kid are going backpacking in and they're carrying like 85 pound backpacks. He's got a Kafaru pack that costs him like 1200 bucks and, and all this stuff. I'm like, man, you don't need all that stuff to go in there. You know, you, the, the, so many people think you need, all this expensive gear to get out there. If you saw what I hunt with, <laughs> you know, I do have llamas. That's, that's yep. better. Yep. But yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's time for us older guys. I know one of you said you were over 50. Yep. Right. I'm 50 now. Yep. Start, start giving it, giving it back and helping some of these other people find out that there's more, more to hunting than just yep. Social killing media. the big, yep. you know, that's true. Mike's preached that all <laughs> time and time again to, to myself, regrounding us, um, recentering us, teaching, yeah. teaching youth, teaching, you know, like you said, late onset hunters, everybody just, it's about the process. Yeah. Yes. Do we want that giant animal? Of course, but yeah. fill in the freezer, the adventure and the stories to share are just as important, if not more. Yeah. And honestly, you know, I, I'm a kind of a born teacher. I've been doing it for a long time, and, and I'm really proud of the accomplishments of people that I've kind of taken under my wing 
for hunting or rock climbing or things like that, that they've surpassed, you know, the things that I've, I've been able to do. And, and I just love that feeling. And so, um, one of the, you know, one of the things that I, that I really look forward to doing, you know, with the guiding stuff is, is to help people that want to learn how to hunt, you know, there's a difference, you know, people, I, I have friends like, Oh, you need to take me hunting sometime. Well, that's going to cost you $5,000. But if you want to just go hunting with me and you learn how to hunt, well, we'll go out. <laughs> you know? yeah, sure. right. <laughs> but if i'm just taking somebody hunting that's just a guided hunt and exactly. you know that's the way it goes now i can't teach everybody to hunt you know or to pack with llamas for free or something like that but that's the kind of people i want to i want to help out i want i want somebody i want to take somebody hunting that they're not going to need me in the future to take them hunting right they're gonna they're gonna be learning and so that's that's kind of my my vision about you know our guiding business and stuff in the future a great, great business model for sure. It's it's des desperately yeah, well, needed. No, we'll we, see. We'll we see if people you for it. For it. You will <laughs> so. instill that spark in somebody, and and they'll carry the torch. That's what we need, right? Yeah, and I I think we don't need more people in hunting. We need more hunters in hunting. You know, we need we need people that are are hunters, not just people to participate. You know, I don't I don't want to attract the crowd. Like I've been a rock climber for almost 50 years and rock climbing has gone through many evolutions and, and it turned out to, you know, now rock climbing because of rock climbing gyms and stuff like that, it attracts people that might as well be just be playing tennis. Right. And, and hunting, you know, can do the same thing when you just like, Oh, you just like go on a canned hunt or whatever. Um, but hunting to me is a lifestyle. Rock climbing to me is a lifestyle, you know, and something you really get into. And so we need more hunters hunting. Not just more people hunting. Exactly. That's the way I see. Nope, it's, it's valid. I agree. Um, we'll definitely have you on again if uh, if you would love to. Um, we were very blessed to have you on today. We've learned a lot. I hope all of our listeners uh, got some insight into why you are so um, in. Why you guys are so all about using the the llamas for the backcountry hunts and stuff. I hope. It's yeah. excited can, everybody. And, you can tell uh, I'm pretty passionate about it. And you talk to Bo Beatty, and he's the same way. <laughs> yeah, you could see it in his face on the interviews or any of the videos or any of the, the shows that he's been on. Yeah. Um, it's not fake. It's real, and he is very passionate. He's very cordial, very humble guy and just loves it. And he's he's faced yeah. some adversity himself and, and still comes out with a smile no matter what. He's, he's a great human yeah. being. Absolutely, 100%. Yep. Well, we always cl close in a prayer. Um, prior to that, is there any parting words that you'd like to share other than I think you did end it already on a good note of yeah, just um, needing more just, hunters into hunting? I'll tell you, I'm, I'm 61 years old. I'm super fit. You know, I've, I've stayed fit my whole life, but I have friends that are younger than me that were fitter than me that haven't survived, you know. So take every day as a blessing, you know, you just, you never know when it's over. I've, I've lived that motto a long time, um, different careers and, uh, tomorrow is not always guaranteed. Nope. nope. So that's, that's my best advice for young or old. Don't be afraid to try. I love it. Yep. Mikey. Great, great, great. All right, Lord, we just, uh, we're just so thankful, Lord, that we could come and, and talk, uh, real life, Lord, and, and, uh, kind of reprioritize, 
you know, um, our interest, Lord, of, of your creation of the outdoors, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that, that you would touch those listeners, Lord, that are listening, Lord, to maybe have us have that paradigm shift to where it's not just about, you know, about uh, holding this big monster trophy animal or, or just doing something because it seems cool, but it becomes a passion and because we can actually witness and enjoy your creation, like through the through the llamas, Lord, and as we heard earlier today, Lord, there's something majestic, you know, and and incredible when you can just go out into the creation and get away from all electronics, and just be able to just sleep and wake up and to hear your creation come alive as the sun comes up. And I think that's why a lot of us love the outdoors and hunting, Lord. And I just ask that you would just uh, bless. Uh, our listeners, Lord, and just uh, we just ask for protection of our country, Lord. And I also ask that you would just bless uh, the business as as you see it, Lord. As we know that there's this passion to to create these pack these pack mules, Lord, and and to establish it as a as a legacy, Lord, in our country, and it's so needed, Lord. And I just ask that you would just uh, bring blessing to that in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Amen.